question for this evening, how to promote your project. So I was thinking a little bit about this, Scott, with regards to what we've already discussed. This seems to be a somewhat perennial topic. And I started thinking about things like the recent SPORE PR and also various university PR that we see um, associated with artificial life simulations and developers specifically. But I think what you were talking about was fundamentally how one promotes your project as an individual. Am I right in that? Uh, yes, basically. I mean, um, projects could be at many different levels. You could have a large commercial project. You could have a small hobby project. You could, you know, could be open source or proprietary or some mixture thereof. Uh, I was just trying to think. I'm not a very good uh, PR person, yet I try to uh, do what I can to to get the word out about my uh, the project I and other developers work on. And I was wondering what other people's uh, experience was with that and uh, what ideas they have along those lines. Well, it's certainly very topical for the stuff that I do with Noble Ape because I find that I need to go through heavy development cycles and then PR cycles. I can't, as an individual, do both development and PR at the same time. It was something actually that caught me recently with the, the Spore release was that it wasn't a particularly good time for me to be taking phone calls or writing emails or doing this kind of stuff with the Noble Ape development I've discussed so far. But Travis, I mean, you've, you've worked in companies, you've done various PR-related things. What's your particular insight in a small company or in as, a, as an individual doing PR for your project? The best way to approach PR is to get your audience involved in it. Um, leveraging your community is by far and away the most powerful way that anybody has ever sold a product. And the advantage of the Internet is you can reach a global community without really any effort at all. Um, doing things, I mean, I think it's definitely worth mentioning, doing a podcast is a great way to get your audience involved. You invite them into the new chat and call in and participate in what it is that you're interested in. And they, in turn, will turn around and promote your uh, project because, well, it's, it's in their best interest to do so. So, I mean, the, the real key in any successful PR push is, is reaching, um, reaching your community with a message that gets them excited about it and makes them want to rebroadcast that message. And there's uh, any number of different approaches to that. It definitely depends on the project and what you're trying, the audience you're trying to reach. But um, it, the whole idea of a branding message is something that people will repeat, and when they see it, it's recognizable. And so hitting that, that core is very much you know, key. Um, the other thing you can do is you know, just kind of beyond the, the grassroots, get more of a, a physical presence. I think that to borrow your example, if I may, Tom, uh, getting people to hand out CDs, which, you know, that's something that ends up, you know, in their car, in their car CD players. And so rather than it being like a, a an active experience of like somebody going out and getting it to them, it becomes more of a passive thing that they kind of stumble upon um, and can embrace in their own time rather than having a branding message pushed on them in a in a time frame that's not convenient to them. So these types of opt-in advertising where you can choose to put CD player in your uh, car and listen to it or not, if that's what you prefer, is very much a, a, a powerful and effective way of reaching the right people with your message. And I think there's something particularly interesting with artificial life because it's we are really moving into a stage now where particularly through things like podcasts and websites and blogs and these kind of things, the people that you're reaching probably have already had some prior experience, even if it's passive, 
with regards to reading something about wet artificial life or, you know, seeing something on the Guardian site or all these various outlets that provide occasional information associated with artificial life. So if you're dealing with what I'll call new media, things like podcasts, digital print, these kind of things, then you're going to have an audience that's going to be distinctly different from someone who, for example, will see an article in a newspaper, potentially something on television or potentially something on the radio. Bruce, you do this on a, a regular basis, but how do you approach an audience that may not know anything about artificial life? Well, it, it, it's pretty much similar to the way I have done it for 15 years about avatars and virtual worlds. I go into the worlds. I go into the environments. I often... the first thing I show is Carl Sims' Balky Creatures, and everybody gets that. Everybody loves it. It's very um, sort of human identifiable, the, the gorilla blockies running in the fish and the, the swimming ones and, and things like that. And, and, and then I'll say run Alan Alda's piece from Scientific American Frontier, so that's extremely well put together. And then I'll try to explain how this is hard and how this isn't necessarily gray goo that will eat the world and how this can be used and, and, and start to show the variety of artificial life uh, projects and talk about the people. But that's fundamentally visual in some regard, and I think a lot of the media that we deal with, particularly audio-related media, but also, for example, if you're doing spots on a, a video podcast or on television or things like that, you may not have access to those kind of resources. So the really, as well as the visual aids and the descriptive movies and these kind of things that you use in a lot of your presentations, uh, it was interesting uh, recently, I think it was Travis even, that talked about the touchstone uh, effect um, relating to Joe's uh, work and how he described his work into lacing with, uh, with artificial life. And I think there are many different components that one can use to describe artificial life to an audience that's not familiar with artificial life. I find talking about anthropomorphism and philosophy and all these kind of things for people who've heard me speak previously uh, about artificial life gives an immediate personal connection, particularly with regards to animals and the difference and same qualities. And this is fundamentally what artificial life is about on an emotive level. But what I find interesting now also is that we, through this um, collection of blogs and online articles and even various aspects of media, I think the earlier um, videos, there was a BBC one and the one that you mentioned, are now also a Discovery Channel one featuring Larry Yeager that talk about artificial life in a historical context in some regard, don't portray what the modern artificial life community is about. And this is an interesting problem that if you interact with people who just say, well, artificial life is just genetic algorithms. I mean, I already know what artificial life is about. Or, oh, I saw that movie in the 80s, you know, that, what's going on with artificial life now? Travis, in terms of communicating with folks that have wrong or conflicting information about artificial life, how would you see to kind of set the record straight and bring them into what's going on in a contemporary setting? Um, by far and away, the best example, the best way to lead is by example, the, um, showing them the existing projects that are out there in order to demonstrate a, a finer point um, is by far and away one of, the, one of the best things you can do. Um, case in point, uh, whenever I go to talk about um, evolving structures and things like that, people often um, get the impression that you couldn't, you couldn't possibly 
have something that walked on two legs unless you had designed it to walk on two legs. And that's where I bust right out with Gerald Dijun's uh, videos from his, um, uh, Darwin, from his Darwin at Home, uh, which shows literally that this bipedal form getting up and, and lumbering around on two legs and describing to them exactly, you know, breaking down all the processes which went into this, which are very fundamentally mathematic and simple to understand when you simply look at what's going on in the simulation. And so using these uh, visual examples and using these, uh, you know, videos is, is really the best way that I have found for as far as, like, breaking things down to people to a really fundamental level that's kind of inarguable. And that's fundamentally John Klein's Breve screensaver as well. I've had a number of instances where from, you know, squirming blockies, it has moved to bipedal walking purely through the fact that it covers more distance. And when you see people observe the screensaver, and it was a very strong uh, point of impact, certainly through Floss Weekly, if people have heard the Floss Weekly interview that I did recently, uh, the, the hosts had seen the Breve screensaver previously. So all these methods in a visual sense get the... Uh, the contemporary message, or at least the historical message of artificial life out to an, an audience. But there seem to be additional components, particularly when you're dealing with a specific project. And the way I like to think about it with Noble Ape, although it's now considerably more abstract than this, but I always think of three independent and distinct people. And these people could be a, a teenager, a high school student, for example, um, someone who has studied biology, and someone who basically has no connection contemporarily with any aspect of science, but they may be social people or they may have aspects of their life that you know one can find a connection with. And in fact, finding the most hostile in some regard people to use in this example in order to frame how do you describe your project to this person oftentimes will strengthen in your own mind how to describe your project to by far the broadest possible audience. So Scott... For you specifically, if you were talking to a high school student, how would you explain Marsden? Oh, boy. Um, actually, probably about the same as if I was explaining it to uh, most audiences. Uh, I found uh, high school students tend to um, understand the concepts fairly well because you can explain to them in terms of uh, computer games that they may already be familiar with, uh, like Civilization or SimCity or, you know, something like that. And I imagine the same could be said for most artificial life uh, projects, that you could find some connection uh, to uh, games or, uh, or uh, other forms of uh, popular media that they would uh, be familiar with. Um, and I, I think teenagers and grade school kids in particular are, have very vivid imaginations at that age, and uh, they're able to wrap their, their minds around the concepts, sometimes a lot easier than uh, adults do. But in some regard, that can be a double-edged sword as well. When I started developing Noble Ape, the immediate feedback I got was, well, isn't that just like SimCity or... You know, aren't they already doing that at Maxis? Or what's the depth, what's the interest in this thing? And I think with regards to particularly misinformation or just a misapprehension with regards to artificial life, you really need to be able to move past just the pure touchstone analogy into something which is 
considerably more personal and, and, and active in order to engage with the particular audiences. Bruce, I can't imagine you ever going into a hostile crowd, but I can certainly imagine you going into a disinterested crowd in some regard. I mean, your background is really talking about avatars. And I'm sure out of the audiences that you've spoken to over the past 15 years, there have been particular audiences that you've turned around. Can you talk a little bit about one of those experiences? Well, it's certainly the much harder audiences are the academics. I mean, they already have a tremendous amount of filters and things up, and they're very specialized in their fields. The best audiences are young people, high schools, uh, elementary schools, when I do science talks in elementary schools. Uh, one of the things that, that is, happens, especially in the United States, is you have to be sort of concerned because if you're talking to schools and there could be a religious a sort of fundamentalist component, anti-evolution component going on anywhere, you may get a question about whether all of this is work or is, it, is evolution a real thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so in order to, to turn that around, you have to really go back down to, to basic things like talking about how dogs are bred and how you can see uh, the evolution of, of you know, we're always trying to get better medicines because the bugs keep changing. And that's evolution, and it happens in, really in front of your eyes. And then you can win over audiences, but you, you really can't talk down to people. You can't use sort of fancy words, and you can't kind of go, and I, th I think this is really important, go into the pop pop culture kinds of things, so the way that, say, Ray Kurzweil would address an audience, you know, a mixture of pop culture and uh, futures that are very highly unlikely, and a lot of, of terms and inventing new terms, and it just creates a hysteria. It creates either a kind of a cult following, but also a hysteria or a kind of a kind of a delusional state. And I think that that, as engineers, most of us here are engineers, we have to always be careful to not do that. So that's an interesting critique, because in some regard, I would say the opposite, that what we have in some regard is an ability to actually critique the hysteria and provide feedback and analysis where if people have heard, for example, about Kurzweil's work, we can offer very distinct and credible critiques with regards to a number of aspects of his work. And moreover, it gives a currency and an importance to what we're doing than if we just sit on our hands and say, well, you know, this little simulation and the dots move around on the screen and like all the monkeys and these kind of things. And this is actually a debate that goes on currently on the Biota Conversations mailing list and also privately <laughs> between me and a number of other individuals. So I, I'm not speaking... As, as the bio community as a whole here, but I think it's a very powerful tool for us to uh, use the knowledge that we've gained, many of us for you know more than a decade, some for even more than two decades, to flush out the charlatans in some regard and also say, hey, wait, we're doing interesting work, which actually has a serious impact on these kind of things, and in large part, we're doing it as hobbies. We're not doing it in... in parts of you know, the scientific community or in industry, although it has an impact on this. And this kind of narrative I found recently, and certainly a number of the folks listening to this podcast now came to it through the Floss Weekly interview, it seems to work in some regard. Now, the critical part about that is that you will get called out and you will have to give increasingly 
detailed descriptions about exactly what you mean. But I will return to what Bruce said, that you can't use new terms unless you define them really tightly and in a way where they then become part of the, the popular vernacular as well. Travis, as you follow terms and ideas and technology and these kind of things, what feedback can you give to artificial life developers currently in this regard? Stay the course. Um, it's, it's as much evangelism as it is anything else. Um, getting people to understand and believe in the ideas um, is largely, at this point, a, a problem of vocabulary. The ideas have been proven empirically over and over again. You know, as, as, to pick a, a scientific term at random, microwave radiation, this describes a phenomenon just like artificial life does, life itself. Um, we don't have any exact proof or way, way of proving that this exists, but we can ex observe it over and over and over again. We can observe evolution over and over and over again in any situation that we set up the, the, the scenarios required to make it work. Same as microwave radiation. And people believe in microwave radiation. They just haven't heard about artificial life yet. So it's, it's about staying the course. It's very much keep getting that word out there, keep getting people to understand what it is that we're talking about and what it is that we're describing here. And two things I wanted to raise before we rounded up this discussion, and as I say, it's going to be a perennial discussion because there are ideas and concepts that come in constantly with regards to promoting projects. But something that I've seen recently, and I've seen particularly through Joe's work and also people like Gerald Jung and um, Joseph Nockvatel and these kind of folk have used viral videos quite successfully. This is ultimately part of the Graysum mandate, if not explicitly, then implicitly. In terms of the impact of videos, I've seen this myself because Bruce's demonstration at Graysum of no blape I put up on YouTube, and I think it's currently at about a 1,000 plays. In fact, Bruce gets fan mail saying that it's wonderful that he's working on Noble Eight currently, which always makes me chuckle a little bit. But in terms of this viral video component, Bruce, do you want to talk about that initially and then we'll pass it to Travis and Scott? Yeah, and, and um, by the way, Dick Gordon is trying to log in and can't seem to get a password for the um, or a login for the chat room. He just sent an email. Uh, but I, I think as, as as a group, if we can produce a really good viral email that explains this, explains what this is, it will really go a long way, and that's really using the tools of the modern age. And I, I am offering our team uh, to do that. We probably have at least another couple of months of funding uh, to be able to work on this. And I'm going for meetings at NASA next week, and we may getting, be getting two more projects that will take us into spring of 09, and so I can actually almost continually have our animator, who's very good, um, build movie after movie and movies within movies. So we could have some really good tools out of it. The caveat being this initial set of movies I want to help with my PhD project um, and explain uh, what I'm trying to do to, to my PhD reviewers uh, early on. I'm only in the, literally in the first few months of the PhD work. So contact Bruce for more information with regards to, to video generation. And the second point that I wanted to make, and this is certainly something which is topical from 
Roxanne Gill's appearance, and I know Travis took exception to it, and I would have taken exception as well, is with regards to the use of Facebook and social networks in general in order to cultivate a sense of, firstly, who your users are, which I think is probably one of the most impressive things that I've found with Facebook through the uh, the Biota group on Facebook and also my, my Noble 8 groups on Facebook is that I can see a wide variety of people that I could never possibly have imagined had used Noble 8 in the past or were part of the Biota community, more importantly. And I now can have primary access to them. I can see what they're interested in. They can correspond with me and I can get a greater sense of this. Scott, have you thought about utilizing Facebook with regards to, to your Mars simulation in that regard? Mm -hmm. I, I've uh, had people uh, suggest that I uh, set up um, a Facebook uh, group for uh, my project. Um, I'm still thinking about it. I've, I've already got a number of message boards and various groups set up, but um, that's something that I might be interested in doing. Um, yeah, I, and you can't discount things just like uh, searching for related uh, message boards and forums and such. Uh, to, the, to the topic of your project. There's a lot of people who uh, regularly are involved with those. Certainly, and obviously download sites and these kind of things are critical, particularly if you have autonomous software that can be downloaded or can exist on a traditional or an open source download site. Certainly my experience with Noble Ape has been with regards to propagating it on all possible download sites with the view that you'll get users that would never have exposure or interest in artificial life if you just put it, for example, on a single open source download site. Travis, can you talk a little bit about utilizing both Facebook and download sites in terms of uh, getting promotion for one's project? Well, certainly. Um, the thing about the Facebook um, is it provides you with this really awesome platform to uh, expand your offering upon. So you can utilize the, the network of Facebook in order to bring in people and have them in turn bring in more people. So uh, an interesting experiment might even be to try and build a, an artificial life Facebook application in which uh, we explore some of the um, scenarios of evolution in a, in a social sense, um, bringing people in and having people um, <clears throat> doing different things to uh, expand their networks and do things like that. The file download sites are, are equally important. Um, the thing that uh, is most important about them is you have to reach them with a with a good medium. Video is an awesome medium because it really does um, reach a, a, an easy to an easy to, to hit crowd, right? You know, they pull it up and they're watching it, and it's five minutes of their time, and they've got this visual and audio experience with it. Um, I think that there's um, there's more opportunities within that, though. I think there's opportunities for narratives, fiction, uh, and uh, you know, using uh, Facebook as a as a blog and using it to uh, bring more of a narrative to your audience. Um, there's lots of different ways to um, capture them on Facebook, not just with applications, but also with groups and um, discussion lists and things like that. So there's lots of different options available to you, and it's really a matter of finding the one that works best for your project and finding the one that works best for your audience. And the user-generated content through YouTube is just phenomenal. I mean, the ability to have, if I was writing a project currently, I would look into the video interface with regards to YouTube just in terms of, I mean, for example, if you look at Joe Reams' work, it is all 
user-generated content on YouTube that then focuses back to his, his primary site. And the ability to have that in a kind of plug-in interaction where people can say, oh, this, you know, this is cool, you know, I'll take, um, you know, however many minutes of this evolving or what have you and then immediately upload it to YouTube is very, very powerful. Do you want to talk a little bit about this, Travis? Oh, it's absolutely amazing. The, uh, the technology is, is rapidly progressing. Um, there's, uh, what's his name? A famous blogger, his name is Escaping Me, who's predicting that, um, that the Apple's going to come out with some more technology here to further improve the situation, namely uh, video encoding and decoding chips standard in all of their products. Um, and if this happens, the, the ante will be up even further because now we'll be dealing with users who are capable of producing high-definition movies literally on the fly and, and combined with the uh, amateur video, pro video production programs that are available and uh, that are literally studio quality and are being used in studios, things like Final Cut Pro, um, the opportunities here to the home user to create just absolutely stunning content is, is mind-boggling. And the thing about it is, is it's so easy to take that content and transport it anywhere else. You can take the, take the movie and embed it on any web page and send it to your friends. And the, the, the reach of it is just is, it's infinite. The potential is amazing. Certainly. And with five minutes remaining, Scott, have we covered sufficient number of topics for you or are there other topics that you'd like covered in a future promotion related bio to live? Oh, um, the only thing else I would talk about uh, related to uh, promoting your project is uh, every time you come out with a new release version of your project, you should use that as a uh, opportunity to promote it, or at least that's what I do on my project. Every few months we come out with a new version release, and I put the message out to all the uh, uh, message boards and forums and uh, also to uh, Fresh Meat, which is a, uh, um, a release uh, file download site that is freshmeat.net. is very impressive for open source projects, and it from there gets sent out to hundreds of other sites. So... To me, that every time that uh, we put out a release, that's a great opportunity to look for um, fresh ways to promote the project. And analogous to podcasts, Fresh Meat has a subscription service as well where people can subscribe to your project and get every new release that comes out, and that's certainly something that's, that I found very cool with regards to Noble Ape releases as well. So with three minutes remaining, I'd like to thank you all for, for participating in this evening's topic. It's been wonderful to have an update with regards to the Evo Grid, Bruce. In the next few weeks, we're going to have Scott's open source topic next week. There is potential for us having Larry Yeager back on, and if we have Larry Yeager back on, it may be with regards to Ed uh, coming on and discussing protocols, which almost fits into the open source topic. Or alternatively, Dick Gordon, I'm sorry he couldn't call in and participate. I'm not sure what the issue was with regards to the password, but I look forward to having future discussions with Dick, with Larry on as well. I'd like to thank you all very much for calling in this evening and participating. Good chatting with you all. Well, thank you very thank much, you, Tom. Tommy. Definitely, definitely a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this uh, upcoming protocol and uh, language uh, podcast, because if we don't get into a good discussion of some of the novel features of Erlang, Haskell, and Prologue, we're definitely missing a point there. Oh, I think it's um, probably going to be ApeScript, Steve, and um, what's the other one? K-Forth, that's Ken Stauffer's programming language for artificial life. So a wide variety of possible languages coming in the very near future. 
Thank you for calling in. Thank you, folks, for listening in this evening. Thank you. Thank you.